episode for the aspiring network scientist with Michele Koshia. What's the rumpus? I'm Asaf Shapira and this is Netflix, the network science podcast. Today, we're going to have a talk with the one and only Michele Koshia. By day, an associate professor at IT University, and by night, the author of the Connecting Humanities blog for network science. In between, he managed to squeeze out a monumental book titled The Atlas for the Aspiring Network Scientist, which will be in our To Talk About list. We'll also review some of his recent papers, talk about the upcoming Network Science Conference, and the satellite event he's running. Together, we'll make history by telling the first network science joke in a podcast. And lastly, we'll try to crack open the mystery behind the Italian's obsession with network science and podcasts. So, Michele Coscia, what's the rumpus? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the, to the podcast. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. Cool. It's an honor to have you. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, gladly. Uh, so, I'm a, a weird researcher. And uh, as many network scientists are, it seems that uh, no, no two network scientists have the same background. So, I am a digital humanist by training. Because when I finished high school, I was undecided if I wanted to take philosophy or computer science. And then I said, well, digital humanity seems exactly the thing that uh, fits for me. So, uh, so, I did my bachelor and my master in Pisa. And then I got my PhD in computer science because there is no PhD in digital humanities, at least there wasn't when I, when I graduated. Uh, so technically, I'm a computer scientist, but I don't like to call me like that. Uh, in fact, all my PhD thesis was all about uh, social networks. So I was still trying to bring the humanities into, into my PhD study. And then I spent a super long postdoc in the United States, in Boston. It was a great time, six years at the Center for International Development, where I have taken part in many of the projects that uh, we are also going to talk about today. And then a friend uh, told me, hey, uh, there is a great opportunity to create something special with networks in Copenhagen. And uh, at the time, it was just him. But by now, our group in, has uh, grown and includes super cool people. We are one of the fastest growing group in a very fastest growing university. So oh, cool. we're very happy. And we are called Nerds Network yeah. uh, Data and Society. Yeah, that's that's a super cool name, as you said. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a long brainstorming to try and find a name, and uh, I think it was a uh, time well spent. <laughs> cool. Uh, about the digital humanities, it's like, I think it's the best aspect of humanity, right? The digital. The digital yeah, aspect. I, mean... <laughs> I say you, you don't want it to be too human, you know? You, you want some digital. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in a sense, uh, I was thinking just today that uh, as we progress, uh, every scientist is a computer scientist, even if you're doing research in history or philosophy, because we do everything with computers, so we need, we need to know something uh, about them. And so the digital humanist is, uh, is somebody who knows and uses the tools of computer science to aid human endeavors. I am just part now of a, of a project that uh, we submitted for hopefully getting a grant about uh, using natural science to analyze the structure, the evolution, the death of the League of Nations. Uh, it's a work of historiography, and uh, I think it's fantastic that you can use networks to do this kind of stuff. Well, that's cool. What drew you to the network science world? I think uh, to borrow something from, from the introduction of the book that I wrote is the fact that the graph model that is at the basis of network analysis is such a It's such a simple model that allows you to use simple operation to say super interesting things about real-world phenomenon. And the real-world phenomena that I'm talking about is almost literally everything, because almost literally everything in reality is made of parts that in some sense interact with each other at some level. You can draw Feynman diagrams to describe how elementary particles interact with each other. And those are, in a sense, networks, because it's all about interactions, up to describing you know, art history uh, as a series of uh, works of art that are uh, citing each other and are taking pieces from each other and re-elaborating what came before. And I'm not making this example by random, because I shared my desk while I was in Boston with uh, Maximilian Schick, who is this awesome art historian who is doing great stuff with network science. And... And that's why I say that there are no two network scientists that have the same background, because you can get from, from physicists to art history in a blimp. Like uh, in my case, it was just walking down a corridor. <laughs> well, that's cool. 
If you're uh, uh, mentioning the networks of the arts, we lost all the computer science uh, <laughs> students that might be listening. So we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll continue without them. Uh, <laughs> I've seen you plug the book you wrote. Uh, do you want to uh, elaborate? Yeah. So I had just earlier this year, I published this, uh, well, published is a strong word, but I, I finished this uh, atlas for the aspiring network scientist, which is a work of love that it took me a couple of years to make. And uh, it stemmed from the fact that I started teaching network science, network analysis to at the IT University of Copenhagen. And I was using as a reference the absolutely outstanding book from Laszlo Barabasi, the network science book. Sorry, the network science, you mean the, the online book he published not so long ago? Yeah, yeah. It's a couple of years ago uh, and it's uh, for free available online. There is a website with exercise. It's, it's great. There's great visualization there as well. Uh, and I wanted to take a little bit of more of a, a breadth, uh, like a wide scope for, for my class. So at, at some level, at some point, I found myself writing very long notes for my students and once the course was uh, was over, I say, well, this is half of a book. I might as well write the other <laughs> half. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so it took me two years to finish because uh, once you start and you get a little bit perfectionist, uh, uh, it's it's very difficult to stop. Uh, but at some point, I had to stop. And the the book is intended to be an atlas. Uh, it's a reference point. It doesn't really contain any deep information about any of the topics that it covers. But the aim is to cover as many topics as possible. So I don't think there is a network science book out there that covers from, you know, you do the Barabashi Alberts uh, network growth model uh, to graph embeddings uh, and to uh, frequent subgraph mining to network visualization. Uh, so none of these chapters go very deep into these topics, but all the topics are there. It, it's basically a summary of every topic that I either learned or come to know during all my career as a network scientist, which started in 2009 with uh, my PhD thesis, uh, which I remember it was, uh, it was kind of shocking. It's another reason why I wrote the book is that I started in this group uh, where the, the director of the group said, okay, you are starting uh, your PhD. And uh, I think that uh, our strategic objective for our group is to become a good group in network science. No one in this group has done network science ever before. So you're going to be the first. So I heard that there is this paper uh, that was the st Structure and Function of Complex Network by Mark Newman. It uh, was published in 2003. She said, I know that there is this paper. This paper contains a very good summary of network science. Here, read it. It was like 45 pages. And then you start. Uh, and I have nothing against Newman's paper. It's absolutely outstanding. But the first thing you read about network science uh, without anybody explaining you anything else let me guess, network models. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah, it was network models, and then it was a lot of math about uh, how to infer uh, uh, the, the diameter, the shortest path length of the random graph, the Erdos-Renyi random graph, and, and th stuff like that. So it's like, it's great, but it's not the first thing I would read. Uh, uh, so, like, I, I really would have wished to have the book that I wrote when I started, and now the, the book exists, so maybe... <laughs> no one ever said I came for the network models and stayed for the science. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, full disclosure, I read the Atlas, not not all of it, of course, you know, I have a life, career, a family, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I really loved what I read and uh, the small community in Israel that uh, works around the network science really loved it and some even uh, translated it. I did some uh, summing up too and uh, especially the episodes I uh, usually don't talk about in the podcast, like uh, the visualization, which was very cool and I uh, really learned a lot. And the thing I liked most about the Atlas was that it was well-written, funny even, and that's not something you really <laughs> expect when you see an Atlas. And I've seen a few Atlases before <laughs> and um, applicable and uh, talked about the main issues. You know, most people look for applications and when they look at the network models, they don't understand what they are supposed to do with it. And uh, when you talk about real world problems, I think it captures people's uh, imagination and they feel more attracted to the subject. Well, that's my, my take. And you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that if I had this kind of uh, glowy review, I would have put in the fourth, uh, the back cover of the book. So uh, maybe for the second edition, I can I can quote you 
on uh, <laughs> on what you think about it. But I mean, I, I think that readers should should really feel that you are very excited about what you're talking about because if if network science doesn't excite me that I live and breathe network science every day, uh, then it has no chance to excite or attract uh, people who have heard of it for the first time. Exactly. We aim high in this podcast, so when, <laughs> now you, you set the bar here and uh, you have a half an hour to amaze us. Okay. So can you tell us about some uh, recent studies you've made? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that is the most exciting research that I put out last year uh, was this research about uh, business travels. Because for a complete coincidence, I ended up uh, writing this paper with two amazing co-authors, uh, Frank Nefke and Ricardo Ausman, both from the Center for International Development. We ended up writing this paper on what happens when international travel stops. And it happens to be published in the middle of 2020. I think that there couldn't have been a, a better or maybe a worse <laughs> moment to uh, publish exactly that paper. It's entirely accidental. That paper has a very long history. Uh, we started working on it probably 2014, 2015. It's, it's been a very long journey. I wish papers were babies because it means that after nine months you're done with it. That's, uh, that's not the case. Uh, but so it's entirely, completely by accident that uh, it ended up being published in summer of last year. Uh, the starting point is kind of simple, is trying to figure out how Uh, countries or regions uh, start producing uh, new things, starting having new activities. Uh, like how do you start an industry in a place that uh, doesn't have anybody who can perform that job, right? So there are many components of uh, how you start a new economic activity. One could be the tools. You know, you, you want to have a factory, you want to make cars. Well, you are going to need these robots or like this kind of uh, infrastructure to make a car. I mean, I don't know how to make a car, but I assume that there is... some set of tools that you need to use, right? But uh, that is uh, definitely not the problem, right? Because uh, if it's only about the tools, then you can just package the tool and ship them to, uh, to a place where it's not making cars and all of a sudden cars will start appearing. And that's not the case. So there is something else. And somebody say, okay, well, there, there are some instructions on how this, these factories are supposed to be run. And uh, this is even easier to transfer the tools because we have the internet, we have an infinite highway uh, of information that can transfer information at the speed of light. So it, it is not only the instruction on how to uh, use those machines. Uh, and there is this theory of knowledge that says, well, there is a component of knowledge that is tacit uh, in the sense that you cannot embed it in tools and you cannot just tell people how to do it. It's something that you need to learn how to do it by either practicing, 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 practicing. or by having somebody explain it to you and doing it with you. Uh, so there is this kind of social component to knowledge transfer. And then there is a part of uh, know who, not, not just know how, but know who, is that you can do amazing things, but if nobody knows about those things that you're making, then uh, it's as if you're not making them, right? Uh, so if you want to get a business deal, you need to know how to connect with the people who are going to make that business deal happening. And so know-how and know-who are very, very hard to transfer. There are a lot of experiments that shows that you can just tell people. You have to learn by doing. Ricardo, the, the, the real engine behind this project, says that, uh, sure, I can get uh, Rafa Nadal to explain to me exactly everything that he does that allows him to serve in tennis the way he serves in tennis. But after he's done explaining it, I am not going to be able to serve like Rafa Nadal I will have to try and try and try as many times as Rafa Nadal did. Probably even more because he's very talented and I'm not. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. That's what I'd say. I'm pretty sure that I'm a very, very bad tennis player. <laughs> so so then, then the thing is that, okay, like how do we test this theory, right? There are some experiments that test this theory, but we want to see the effect of this theory at the macro level. And so we partner with the Mastercard Center for Inclusive Growth because they had these great data sets that uh, they allow us to access uh, in an aggregated and anonymized form that uh, includes all the foreign transactions that were made by corporate issue credit cards. So these cards are issued to a corporation for work rather than to individuals for personal use. Um, and so every time you see one of these cards 
making an expenditure in a country that is different from the one it was issued in, you know that somebody has traveled from the country of origin that issued the card to the country of destination where the expenditure was made. And then we do some mathematical trickery that I'm not going to explain because it's just too boring for a podcast to infer uh, who are the industry that are sending these travelers. And so we can use this, this thing to create some sort of index of like how many travelers from a specific industry rather than from a specific country uh, a destination gets. And then we can make all sorts of things trying to infer, okay, is this associated with a growth in the particular industry in the country of destination? Do the new industry appear? Does it grow faster? And we do see that effect. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's kind of amazing that we actually are able to see that effect because business travel, after all, is a very, very weak signal. Uh, Zoom, Skype, and this kind of conferencing uh, software existed before Corona, but companies were not using them, or at least they were not using them enough to cancel the business travel. It was a trillion dollar industry, business travel. And so... Just by looking at the number of people from an industry that a country receives, we are able to actually show that that industry will grow in the country destination, which is kind of amazing. And so then you can reverse the result that we found, which is exactly what happened with Corona. You can say, okay, what if a country or all countries stop sending business travelers? How much do we expect the global GDP to drop? And it's kind of alarming. Like the United States, for instance, has a huge impact. Uh, so if the United States stops sending business travelers, our math says that the global GDP will drop by 1%. Just just by that fact, because, because new industries stop growing and stop appearing because they don't get the knowledge coming from the United States. Just because of business travelers, nothing else, 1% of the GDP, global GDP. And that's just the United States. What inspired you to do this work? Because uh... I don't know, the Walking Dead series or something? Because in, in 2015, I, I don't think we even thought about this uh, possibility. Oh, definitely we were not thinking actually seriously about uh, business travel ending. <laughs> we were more thinking on the line of the Atlas of Economic Complexity, which is another atlas I was involved in. Uh, I, I'm an atlas guy. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and because it was all based on this assumption of... Uh, uh, the sticky nature of knowledge, of tacit knowledge, and how hard it is to transfer knowledge. But it didn't actually test the theory. We're just assuming that the theory was true in order to reach some conclusions. The, the basis of that atlas was the product space, which is a network where you are connecting products, uh, let's say, I don't know, cars and airplanes that countries can export. Um, and you're connecting them if a significant number of countries are co-exporting them. The implicit assumption here is that if many countries can co-export these two products, then these two products must have something in common. They must have some, some sort of knowledge behind their production that is in common. And so they are related somehow. Some kind of projection, you mean? Like, uh... Yeah, exactly. It's basically all you can observe is like this bipartite network connecting a country can export that product. So this is what you observe. This is the explicit structure. But the implicit structure is the projection of that. So you're just making the countries disappear and you just have... The connection between products uh, and then you can do lots of interesting stuff because you can see how countries move in this product space you can try to describe how complex the occupation of the country in the product space is uh, and this uh, economic complexity index which is a consequence of this research uh, is actually strongly predictive of future growth so you can see that uh, countries that have the highest complexity index are like japan germany so this kind of uh, very strong economies we based it on an assumption that was not really tested. And so we were trying to test this assumption. And this business travel paper was like the idea of making this paper was testing this assumption. You said that the businessman going back and forth from different countries is related to knowledge, but maybe you can interpret it in a context of trust. I mean, when you do business, you want to meet the people you know. It's, maybe it's not knowledge that you transfer, but uh, trying to build trust. Whatever it's in these links of the business travel is something super complex that we are at the moment oversimplifying. There is absolutely 100% an element of trust, uh, which we are trying to capture by using the term know who, because it's like building the social relationship. Uh, and then there is also a bunch of other analysis that actually didn't make into the paper that builds on this kind of complex effects. For instance, 
uh, we were made this preliminary analysis that we didn't manage to make into the paper that says, okay, so how strong is this effect of business travel in creating these new industries or actually trading? So like creating these trade, uh, trade deals, um, depending on some characteristic of the products or the industry that you're looking at. And we were seeing that actually business travels matter much, much, much more if the product is complex. Uh, I think it was a lemur category of products that says that divides products into three categories. Uh, one is the product that basically you don't need to know anything about the product and you know what you're getting. So like if you're buying bananas, you're buying bananas. It's like a commodity and, and you just get it. If you're buy, buying a barrel of oil, it's a barrel of oil. And then there are products that uh, at the other end of the spectrum is that are very specific and you need to know exactly what you're buying. And so we were seeing that basically business travel had almost zero effect uh, when it comes to buying these bulk commodity goods, uh, but has a super, super strong effect uh, if you are actually buying like some complex machi machinery that you need for your plant and then you need to exactly know the specification that uh, that your workers need. And so this kind of trust is super important because you need to go there, you need to see the machine and you need to know the person that is selling to you because you need to know that this person is actually not uh, selling you something that uh, is actually not what you think it is. So, so yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, science never ends, right? Science is just fractal. The more you answer, the more questions you get to ask. So yeah, uh, uh, I suppose that we could start writing the new paper about you know networks of trust. And... Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you talked about something that didn't make it to the paper, so uh, you heard it here first, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, cool. Okay, so we'll let you off the hook on this one. And uh, can you tell us about uh, more studies you made, maybe about the disinformation in the social networks? I'm just guessing here. Yes, yes. I mean, I, this is uh, another super interesting track of research. I, I am very eclectic. <laughs> so, so yeah, I also dub into social media disinformation. And I had this work that I'm doing with Luca Rossi, which was the person who, who brought me to Copenhagen. It, it's actually a cool story because basically uh, I was just in his office. I was trying to waste his time because I, I was bored uh, and we were just talking about random stuff. And it was trying to get rid of me uh, and says, okay, I'm going to show you something interesting. So maybe, maybe you're going to go away. So he got some data about uh, flags on Facebook. So like flagging means that uh, a user sees something that somebody shared uh, and say, okay, well, this thing seems like fake news. So I'm going to flag it. If a news item receives enough flags, then it's going to be sent to fact checkers by Facebook uh, to figure out whether this thing is actually fake news or not. The data set you talked about was released by Facebook about a year ago. And what puzzled me was that I haven't seen a lot of papers about it. You know, Facebook collects a lot of information. I, I don't know how many opportunities there are that it releases them to the general public. But just a few weeks ago, Sunni Lehman uh, tweeted about his subjective feeling that provocative posts get more engagement. And uh, he asked about data that could verify this. And I think this data set is the key. So you actually use this data set. That's, that's cool. <laughs> it does come with some, um, some strings attached, uh, being able to access this data. So it's not, it's not as open. It's not that you, there is just a download button and you can get it. He had actually a subset of it that it was only for the Italian Facebook. This is like every website and the number of flags that he received on Facebook. The funny thing was that you would expect that the news organization that get the most flags, they are the ones that uh, spread more misinformation. Like, uh, okay, we were looking at the Italian data set, but if you are American, you will expect, I don't know, a very extreme right-wing or very extreme left-wing content, uh, like, I don't know, Infowars or Breibart uh, to be more, uh, more represented in this data set. But that's actually was not at all the case. The newspapers that were getting the most flags were the ones that actually are the most neutral. Uh, in Italian, uh, the, we have the Repubblica, Corriere della Sera. They do have their precise leaning. So Repubblica is a little bit center-left and Corriere is a little bit center-right. But they are mostly central. Like they, they are what you will call mainstream media. So they are relatively center and yeah, they're not perfect, but it's not that they just straight up invent things. And so that was super puzzling. It's like, why is that 
the neutral sources are the ones that receive most flags. Let me try. Maybe it's uh, biased because they have the most posts. I mean, that's my hypothesis. That Activity does uh, get that into account. But the thing is that Facebook does not send straight uh, the articles to fact-checking uh, just because they receive a lot of flags. First, there is an intermediate step. They do have also a machine learning algorithm that tries to correct for popularity and these kind of things. And only after the article passes also this automatic check, it gets sent. And what we received was a thing after the black magic that Facebook does. So the fact that some sources just post more, it's already taken into account. So it's, it's the simplest uh, machine learning thing that you can say, you just control for the source uh, activity or the source popularity also. And then just send if they send, if they get more than expected. That was already taken into account and they still get the most flags. The problem of doing this kind of research that we wanted to do, trying to explain this, is that you are trying to uh, hypothesize what happens inside the head of people. And that's not very easy to, you know, crack open and, uh, uh, and, try, to, and try to observe. And it doesn't leave a lot of traces in the data that we have. So the approach we decided to take was to use this agent-based model. So we just create this simulation where we create a social network that is completely synthetic with uh, you know, synthetic people in it, with synthetic news sources. And then we just say, okay, well, let's assume that there are very simple rules in the system. And then let's see what these rules imply in the flags that, uh, that these people determine. And so we try to, to build it as simple as possible. We say, okay, well, a person has an opinion, uh, which is a polarity value between minus one and one you know, left wing, right wing, and uh, also new sources as an opinion between minus one and one. And so whenever a user sees a news item uh, coming from a source, they just see how far that opinion is from mine. If it's very close, I'm going to share it with my friends because I really like it. And so I think that my friends should read it. If it's very far, uh, I'm going to flag it because, you know, it's outrageous. It's like, how can anybody write this, this kind of fake things? Right, so the user only sees stuff that either they read directly from a news source or their friends share them with them. Those are all the rules of the game, and we see that uh, if you do that, you just end up with an overwhelming number of flags that ends up in the neutrality part. So, like the all the sources that have a neutra- uh, polarity of zero, they get the most flags. Now you can crack open this uh, this system and try to figure out where are these flags coming from. And the thing is that when you have a very central news source that is very neutral, the news item that he publishes, they spread in the network very, very far and wide because they're on average close to everybody. So they are able to enter into the eco chambers in the communities of super extremist people and they flag them because you know they really dislike neutrality because... For a person that is very, very right-wing, neutrality looks like left-wing. There's a bias because it's the most widespread. And what you're saying is there is a a Nash equilibrium that people uh, turn to the center, but in this case, they criticize the center. Exactly, exactly. Because the the thing that these uh, very extremist communities produce, um, it doesn't get out of their echo chamber. None of the moderates sees them. If the moderates were to see them, they would flag them but they don't see them because it just doesn't propagate outside those communities. And so that's, that's exactly what, what's happening here. Uh, and so that's what, that's what we find with this like, simple agent-based model. Cool. There's uh, another research you wanted to talk about, about the generalized Euclidean distance. And I have to say, I've read it. I did the mistake of trying to read one of the references. I think it was uh, Schumann's paper about the signals on graphs. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> That is some tough math. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sort of. Hold our hand while talking about the subject. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm definitely not going to try to explain the Schumann paper because I think that I'm grossly underqualified to to actually explain it to you. Can you start with the title and uh, what's the subject of the research? And of course, its application. Yes, okay. of course. So the 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 paper we are talking about is like this: generalized Euclidean distance to estimate. Uh, uh, the distance covered by propagation events in a network. Great name. 
<laughs> I am very bad at naming things, as all scientists are. <laughs> so the idea here is that you have a social network, let's say, uh, and you have something propagating through it. For instance, a disease, like a, an example that is not on anybody's minds these days. Uh, and so you observe this network, and uh, at some point in time, some people are sick and some people are not. And then you wait a month, and some other people are sick, and some of the sick people have recovered. So how far did the disease travel in this network? So is this disease traveling fast? Is it slow? What can we say about the speed of transition of this disease? Interestingly enough, there isn't really a way to do that. Uh, because if you want to estimate network distances, very easy way to, to do it when you only have like two nodes, that the distance between two nodes is super trivial. It's just a, the, the shortest path between these two nodes and number of edges. But when you have a disease moving, you have groups of nodes, like the distance between two groups of nodes that can then be affected by disease at different levels. Some can be very sick and some may be just not very sick. So they're affected by the disease at different levels. How do you do that? Uh, and, and this problem can be, it's just a general form of many other problems. You can have a viral marketing campaign where you want to spread news about your fantastic new product or podcast uh, to everybody. And you do your campaign and then you, you had some people who knew your podcast before and then some people who knew it after. How do you know that your campaign was successful? How far did this campaign went? There can be other, other things like, uh, for instance, the, the product space that I already mentioned. You have a country exporting some products in 1970 and then in 2012. How much did it change? Like how much did it move through, through the product space? So like just... Being able to answer that question is super interesting and has so, so many applications. When you said about the epidemiological aspects of the work, we have on the models uh, SI, SIR, SCIR, you have the R0, right? To, to understand how contagious the plague is. Yeah. What you're saying is you complete the picture by saying not just how contagious it is, but what's the speed of the contagion? Can you say that? Yeah, you can say that. In fact, the two are related. Like, for instance, if I run an SIS or an SIR process on a network, uh, and then I forget all about the contagion parameters that regulates how these things spreads in the network, and I just calculate the distance, you can recover the, that parameter uh, by just looking at the distance. So it's a very strong predictor of, the, of that. Uh, and then, you know, the two are correlated, but not, not exactly the same. So they're looking at slightly different things. Uh, but they are they are strongly related. So yeah, you can totally do that. That's amazing because in the popular talk, you know, between epidemiologists, which means everybody these days, <laughs> R0 is the most uh, talked about concept. And w what you're saying is, don't just look at how much the uh, virus uh, duplicates itself. Look at what's the speed that it, it infects people. Yeah, and, and I have some, some bachelor students right now that are doing some super interesting project using this measure... Uh, with corona data, and they see that uh, uh, there is this, this super cool thing that if he holds, uh, for now it's just preliminary, but if it holds, it's, it's absolutely amazing, is that the network distance measure increases as a spike right before the actual number of cases start to grow, and then also as a spike when the uh, number of cases drop. So that means that basically the disease is like kind of moving into the network And at some point, it started moving very, very fast in a particular week. And then in the week after that, the number of cases will go up. And my theory that is absolutely speculation and absolutely not at all verified or anything. So just to be clear. I'll stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, is that basically the, the, the disease is like moving from, okay, it was in a community, it was somewhere, and it just affected the people it could affect. And then it's like just jumping into a different place in the network where it hasn't affected the people yet. And then you wait for the incubation and boom, the number of cases will, will skyrocket. So it's like looking at this speed of propagation in the network doesn't tell you the number of cases. It tells you when the number of cases are about to go very, very much up or they're going to go uh, very, very much down. So uh, it could be a way to predict before the spike happens, that a spike is coming. I understand why it uh, predicts when the plague is going to go up, but 
why the virus spreads faster when it's going down? So it's not that it's spreading faster. This is a little bit of the nature of the counterintuitive nature of this network uh, distance is the fact that it's not that the virus is spreading faster. It's just that... It goes further. Exactly. It goes further. And growing further also means shrinking. Uh, so that the network is just is just a pure distance. So it's like it also has a sense of scale. So for instance, when you go from one to two, you're doubling in size. So you are moving by a factor of two, let's say. But you're also moving by a factor of two when you go from two to one, because you're half in the size. So so the network distance just take the absolute value of the distance that is covered, and it doesn't know which direction it went. It could have gone up or it could have gone down. So the disease is moving. Also, a disease that is disappearing from a network is, in a sense, moving. It goes by a power, but you don't know if it's a plus or a minus? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, the, then you can just look at other data and you can infer whether it's a plus or a minus. So that's uh, that's not a problem. So I guess we should hire someone to check if it's a plus or a minus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's a cool job. And uh, I, I, when I read it, I had a question, which I, I'm dying to ask someone. I've seen you use the uh, Doshreni model. And my layman question is, why? No, <laughs> Why do scientists use uh, ER models when, I guess, we know it's not real-world networks and, in my humble opinion, doesn't have many applications? Discuss. <laughs> I obviously cannot speak for all network scientists, so there are many uh, network scientists out there that probably are going to disagree with me. But the way I personally use the Erdos-Rini uh, graph model is as a baseline, in the sense that if... Uh, what I am looking at works in the Erdos-Rating model exactly the same as it works in all the other type of networks. The, it means that like the network structure on which this thing is happening doesn't matter uh, because the Erdos-Rating model uh, basically does not have many, as you say, real-world properties. It doesn't have this power load distribution. It doesn't have communities. It doesn't have clustering. So... If the networks that do have those things, like you can do a stochastic block model with communities, uh, you can impose a power loading distribution on it. If the two things works exactly the same, the Erdos-Rainy and the stochastic block model works exactly in the exact same way, it means that perhaps what I'm looking at is not really a network thing. So you look at it as a, as a control group? Exactly. Okay. So when people say it works on Erdos-Rainy, you should uh, take it... Um... I mean, it also depends on what the it is, right? If you have a community discovery algorithm and it works on Erdos Rainy, then you're doing something really wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a network science joke. Won't catch on. I mean, it's a network science podcast, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it won't catch on. Okay, so just just uh, trying new things, you know, it's some uh, yeah. A-B testing. Can you take me through the applications of the uh, paper? Uh, yeah, so for instance, uh, one of the things that you can do is trying to use it to figure out whether the propagation event that you're looking at is actually using the network or not. In the paper, there is an experiment that I do with this uh, social network about books. And uh, basically, I say, okay, well, uh, there is this social network. There are people who are friends with each other. And then all these people uh, are telling me what books they have read. Uh, and I have six observations of this network. So I have like, a, big temporal span of six months. You can ask yourself, is this book really propagating because of word of mouth? So it's like uh, people are getting advice from their friends on what to read? Or is it something else that has made this book very popular and just appears in the network by an external force? And you can with this measure. Because if a book is propagating extremely ridiculously fast, it means that it's very unlikely that it's actually using the edges of the network. It means that there is something else that is making people start reading uh, the book. Well, if it's uh, uh, if I get advice from friends, the book is actually using the links, uh, and so it will move slowly in the network. What you mean is, if it propagates from an outside source, I'll see shorter links or even no links between the labeled nodes that read the book. And if it propagates from word to mouth, I should see long paths in the network. 
Yeah, exactly. Like to to re-say what you just said is that um, a book that comes from the exterior will affect or whatever it will be read by people who are not connected to each other. While if instead it's a word of mouth, it will affect people who are connected with each other, and these will cause the network distance to be shorter because you are people are connected to each other versus longer distances because people are not connected to each other, and so. If it was propagating through the network, it would have to go with these uh, many, 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 many edges. The fastest book that we see in the data are Harry Potter books and um, the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson. Uh, this is a Scandinavia podcast now. <laughs> and the thing is that in the period of observation that we have the data, a new Harry Potter movie came out and also the movie about the Stieg Larsson book came out, the Millennium Trilogy. And so these are exterior events that people say, oh, that this, this was a cool movie. I'm going to start, I'm going to read the book. While the books that are moving slowly are books that are classic of either international literature or Italian literature. Okay, cool. And I have a couple of questions about the paper. If I understand correctly, you cut the network into time windows and you have to have the same number of vertices in each window. Yeah, not only the same number of vertices, but you have to have this, the exact same set of vertices. It's a little bit of a limitation on the paper. <laughs> As you said, it's, it's a bit of a limitation. And what I'm curious about is it sounded uh, a bit complex. When I read Schumann, it was like, okay, it's very complex. And I wondered uh, why not use for the same uh, goal, a sliding time window, just to make sure you know you don't miss any jump and take only the labeled nodes because you know which nodes are infected, which are not, and just do a simple BFS and look for the largest distance? Discuss. <laughs> uh, so you could do that because uh, there is an alternative approach that uses a different uh, different methodology than the one that I used that actually does shortest path. Uh, it's called the Earth Mover Distance, and it's basically an optimized BFS. Yes. You've mentioned it in the paper, but you said it doesn't scale well. Yeah, because calculating actually the shortest path is computationally rather complex. While uh, my methods works with an assumption that like it's heat diffusion, right? You you have some some nodes that are hot, uh, that are the origins of your of your propagation, and then they just diffuse ar- around the network, uh, and uh, and when they hit their destination, you can say you know what the time where where they hit the destination, it's the distance propagated. So that this is a very dumb down version. Of, uh, of the methodology. And my methodology requires the network not to change because you need this heat conduction to happen. Uh, so you can't do the, t- the sliding window. The earth mover distance would allow to the network to change, although I haven't ironed out all the kinks of actually making that, that work. But you could do that. You definitely could do that. I mean, this is a, this is a great paper idea. You, you, you really should write the paper. <laughs> More a lover than a writer. <laughs> but when you said it doesn't scale well because of the shortest distance, but you know the timestamp of each node, right? The, the infection time of each node. So if you take the current time minus the last edge that went in the node, you get the difference in times between their interactions. And what you're looking for is not, yeah, it's sort of the shortest distance, but I mean, it's like you turn the time between the nodes as the weight of the edge. And then the lighter the weight, the influence travels faster. And then you can use diextra and so scale it up, right? Yeah, I mean, it, um, when I say that it's uh, time-consuming, I'm always overly critical because it's not a method that I develop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. I mean, uh, uh, diextra is uh, the most efficient that you can do, but it still takes a little bit of time. Uh, and so... Uh, when you start really looking into depth on how to implement this thing, then you realize that, uh, yeah, it's it's actually very complex. Uh, but I think that you're onto something super interesting and uh, maybe I'm going to steal the idea. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, luckily I forgot to press the, the record button, so <laughs> feel free. Okay, I think we've covered your entire career, so... Uh... Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Besides the cool papers, I, you have a great blog. As the Atlas, it was very uh, informative, funny, well-written. 
Thank and you. the post I liked best, which uh, you actually, when I said, let's discuss this post, I thought you'd be more enthusiastic. It's the community detection of community detections. I, I love that post. I think it was amazing. And uh, I, uh, I uh, gave a lecture uh, a week ago, and uh, I thought it was very cool to show the different uh, categories of uh, community detection. But which uh, community detection algorithm you used on the community detection? That's the thing I, I haven't... Uh... Yeah, because like, that's, that's a great endorsement, right? If you, if you do this kind of work where you're criticizing all oh, community discovery algorithm, and then you use a community discovery algorithm, exactly. then the one you use, you're really, really strong endorsing. <laughs> uh, so I, I am going to be honest. I used the InfoMap. Uh, that is like this uh, made by Roswell and Burstall. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a great algorithm. <laughs> it's it's a fantastic algorithm. I I wish I was uh, like ten percent as smart as as those two people that, that made that algorithm. <laughs> and they have a cool website. They are fantastic visualizations. They're making a lot of work on the algorithm. Like it's not something like yeah. When I develop something, uh, then when I get bored, I just do something else, and uh, my whole project they just die. Well. They had some impressive grit in saying, okay, no, 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 this thing is important and we are going to keep working on it. Uh, they keep updating it. They keep updating features. Uh, it's, it's an amazing software project. Yeah, it really is. And uh, what's your favorite post in the, in the blog? I think that the one that you chose is absolutely one of the best. You downplayed it. That's, that's it. That's it. Because I know, I know why. <laughs> no, no, it, it sounds nerdy, right? It sounds too nerdy. It sells. I don't know. Okay. It is very nerdy. It's, it's very meta. Like, you know, you make community discovery and then you apply community discovery on the community discovery. And, and it's, just, it's just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I reached to Rossetti about community detection. I think I'm, doing, I'm going to do an episode uh, with him. But, but uh, be careful in inviting too many Italians. They're going to take over your podcast. I uh, thought about it. I uh, engage mostly in Italians. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a mystery. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't want, you know, want him to be jealous. And <laughs> I, I, I don't want to go there. So we'll put the community detection aside. Let's do that. Well, there is the upcoming uh, conference uh, of 2021, the Sunbelt and the NetSci, uh, INSNA and the NetSci uh, joining up. You'll probably blog about it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mention it because I think that uh, if I have to say which are the type of posts that I've write that are the most uh, appreciated by the community, these are the kind of posts. I, I, every time I go to a conference, I then uh, try to write up you know, my impressions, you know, the, the talks that uh, impress me the most uh, in the conference and the interesting people I, I talk with. It's an it's an interesting slice of life, you know. The conferences are when science gets alive, uh, and uh, I think that uh, the best work that I made they were born out of an interesting conver- conversation that I had during a conference. I, I really can't wait for uh, starting conferencing in person again. But uh, you're on the conference. I mean, you have uh, yeah. I am involved in the conference in, in multiple ways. I have uh, a few abstracts that got accepted, uh, so I'm going to present one of those. Uh, but I also am co-organizing a workshop, a satellite event uh, on complex networks and economics. So uh, with Morgan Frank uh, and uh, Link Fei Liu, this is the first time that this is happening. Uh, network science, NetSci. Uh, was the is the flagship event of a particular community of network science, uh, and Sunbelt is the flagship event for another community of network science. Uh, and uh, the two events were separate, uh, and there wasn't that much overlap between the two, right? I'm not saying that the two committees were not talking to each other because that's not true. There, uh, there is a main list for the. Uh, people who work in social network analysis that attend the, the, the Sunbelt event. But it's super exciting that the two flagship events happen at the same time in the same place to the same people. But uh, but the intermingling is really not going to be really there as much as it could be with the virtual formats. And so I really, I really wish we are going to do it together every year. Do you want to elaborate about the satellite? Yeah, so the satellite is, um, it just means that it's like a sub-event uh, that is uh, happening before the conference. And uh, it is 
specifically laser focused on a specific topic uh, of the conference. So the conference is going to be network science in general. So the, the satellites try to be a little bit more intimate. This specific satellite topic is about application of network science uh, in economics and innovation. Uh, so the problem space that I mentioned is a perfect example of trying to use the network science tools to say something about economic growth. Uh, like, can we predict which are the countries that are going to grow or going to shrink their economies in the future just by using tools of network analysis? The business travel paper, we talk extensively about that. It's another perfect example of the kind of things that we are looking at. Uh, but that's not all. Like, there are, there are great uh, other works that use networks and they're related to innovation. Uh, we have one invited speaker, Ye Jin Ju. She's a, a researcher from South Korea that uh, she works in uh, Chicago at the moment. Uh, and uh, she's done amazing work uh, with networks of patents. So she uses the USPTO, the United States Patent Office, to figure out the relations between inventions and how this system evolves over time and try to figure out uh, uh, what are the network effects of this kind of combining new innovations and new inventions. Is it adding a new invention, an additive increase in productivity, or uh, is it a multiplication? Uh, and it's a multiplication. Like every time you invent something new, you can combine it with everything else that was made before. And so a new thing, it's a, a square possibility of new things happening in the future. So, so that's, that's super interesting stuff. You mean like which patents are the platform for other? Yeah. Okay, cool. Michele, it was a great talk. I had a really great time. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was fantastic. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to start uh, listening to your podcast now because I think that uh, you're an absolutely great host. And I'm sure that uh, also the rest of the episodes are, are going to be absolutely fantastic. Okay, so I should interview more Italians. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Bye-bye. Did you enjoy and want to share? Have you suffered and you don't want to suffer alone? Tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts or like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. The episode's notes and links are available on Netflix's site. That's www.snapod.net. If you're from Israel, rate us on Podcasts of Israel. The music is courtesy of Compile Band. See you in the next episode of Netflix. Shame.